the story of when God hits reboot uh, or reset on his creation. Now, the Bible doesn't call it that, of course, but effectively, that's what happens. Uh, uh, the things in this world have deteriorated so badly, they become so rotten, as we'll see, that God decides to hit reboot, if you like, to hit reset on his creation. And we're, and we're going we're gonna to look at that story over the next two weeks. And one reason why we're able to move uh, through these chapters rather quickly is that it was only quite recently, in fact, just about two years ago, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, that we did an entire 10 or 11 uh, part series all on Noah. And at that time, we looked at this story in much greater depth and detail uh, than we will cover over the next two weeks. And so I don't want to spend too much time just going over the very same ground uh, again that we've just recently been uh, through as a church, and, 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 and that resource is, I assume, still available online, though, uh, if you want to check it out. Uh, now, before we uh, turn our attention to Scripture this morning, I do want to make uh, an introductory comment, and, and that is to say that if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, um, or you're very new to Christianity, you will probably find this story very hard to believe. And we might as well just be honest about that. Uh, the idea of this huge boat and massive flood, you think, how on earth am I supposed to believe that? Well, let me just say that there is actually a lot of literary evidence, not just from the Bible, but a lot of literary evidence and some archaeological evidence too, that at some point in the middle of the third millennium BC, a sudden flood covered and devastated the earth. The Mesopotamians recorded in their epics of uh, Atrahasis and uh, the Gilgamesh. Uh, many of you have maybe heard of one or both uh, of those. Uh, the ancient Greeks confirmed it in one of their tales. Um, as far west as the Aztecs in, uh, of Central America, as central, centrally as the early peoples of India, as far south and east as the Aborigines in Australia, the ancient record is filled with accounts of a great flood. In other words, the flood of Genesis 6 and 7 was so cataclysmic that, it, that it, it, its echo is heard in almost every ancient culture. And even though all of these different sources may disagree with each other as to why it happened, the sort of theological significance of it, if you like, the historical reality of a huge flood is actually pretty much universally affirmed. So much so that only rank 21st century arrogance could deny this consensus. Anyway, that, with that introductory comment out of the way, let's turn to uh, Genesis 6. And, and what we've seen so far in Genesis is that in the beginning, God creates this world and, and everything there is out of nothing, including people who are unique among creation in that they are made in his very own image. And he declares that it is all very good and exists for his glory. And part of what it means uh, for human beings to be created in his image is that as image bearers, we have specific roles and responsibilities. And we see that Adam being the father of our race, he bears the responsibility for sin. 
And that sin is then passed down through him. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that indeed the sin of Adam spread from Adam to his sons, from Cain, his eldest, when he killed Abel, his secondborn. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we now see this sinful pattern spreading throughout the entire world. And we watch as the world degenerates into this just terrible mess. And so let's pick up the story from where we we left off last time. Actually, let me, let me just back up a, a few verses to begin reading at chapter 5 and verse 28. Now, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. So for generations, people had been waiting for a Savior. See, they, they knew the story of, of Eden. They knew that as a result of the sin of Adam, there was this curse given. And as part of the curse... They carried with it a promise that one day an offspring of Adam, someone from Adam and Eve's family line, was going to come and be a savior, be a rescuer. And and in all of the long genealogy that we find in chapter 5, that effectively spans hundreds if not thousands of years, we've got only one guy, Enoch, who it says walked with God. Wickedness prevailed upon the earth, and only one guy is described as having walked with God. And then comes along Lamech, and he has a son, and he names his son with a little bit of hope, that maybe his son would be the savior, the rescuer that everyone is waiting for. And he names him something that rhymes with the word uh, in Hebrew for rest. He names him Noah. Of course, Noah doesn't quite bring that. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now as we turn the corner uh, into chapter 6, we hit a a big parenthesis. What we hit is uh, four verses at the beginning of chapter 6. That is one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of Genesis. And one that understandably people have got a whole lot of questions about. But listen, a a lot of people, much, much, much smarter than me, can't seem to figure it out uh, and agree on these verses. And so I'm not, uh, this morning in the time that we have, I'm not going to be able to do much more than just muddy the waters. But what what we, we do know is that these verses give us context for what's, what happens in Noah's story. And so I'm going to just read it straight through and then make a, a quick comment and, then we'll, and then, we'll move, then we'll move on. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, many of you don't care about that and never read it. Uh, There may be some of you who have scratched your head a lot thinking about this passage. I can tell you there's a lot of people on the internet, of course, who think this is the craziest passage in the entire Bible. 
But what we've got in, in chapters five, chapter 5 is people living hundreds of years. And they're obeying God in one sense. He said, multiply, fill the earth. They're doing that. They're multiplying, filling the earth. And in the storyline, we meet a few characters. We've got the sons of God, whoever they are. And they've noticed that these daughters of men, whoever they are, are attractive. And so these sons of God see these women, uh, they see that they are beautiful, and so they begin marrying them, and then they have children. These children are described as Nephilim, who, who are the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Okay, so, so who are the Nephilim? Well, Nephilim is a really weird word because in Hebrew, the word Nephilim is Nephilim, Right? And the reason this is important is because what we do is we translate the Hebrew to English so that we can understand it. But every once in a while, you hit a term where people just go, I don't know, what, I don't know how to translate this. And so they just transliterate it so that we can pronounce it, and then they just, they just move it into the English Bible. And that's what happens with Nephilim, because it's, it's one of those weird terms that we only see a couple of times, and we can't really get a context for it. And so this sort of thing adds to the complexity and the challenge in trying to properly understand a text like this. And in fact, even a term here like the sons of God provides a measure of challenge to us. Who are the sons of God being described here? Well, some would argue, and this is probably the most popular understanding, they would argue that the sons of God were, were of the downline of Seth. Seth is... The child that was born from Adam and Eve after Abel was killed. And so these would, it is argued, be the godly line, the, 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 the godly men. And then the daughters of men were, were those coming from, from Cain's line, that is the ungodly line. And so the idea is, is like you have the seminary students marrying the party girls, okay? And they somehow create this crazy offspring. Now, as they say... This is probably the predominant view. The biggest problem, of course, is the text doesn't actually say any of that. It doesn't mention Seth. It doesn't mention Cain. The text doesn't talk about that at all. It, it, it doesn't explain why these kids become these mighty men, these described as Nephilim. So while this interpretation is neat and tidy, it, it, it's not without issues. But I think the reason why this viewpoint is so popular is because otherwise you come up with some pretty weird stuff. And again, we don't have time to get into all the details and technical reasons why, but there are others, including some of the earliest church fathers, who would argue that the sons of God speaks of angels, fallen angels. And so they would argue that the sons of God were either demon-possessed men or actually angels, fallen angels, who had sex with human women, and that they had offspring. They're like ligers, you know. They're like these, these human, hybrid human angels. Yes, and suffice it to say, this view is not without significant issues either. But listen, before we get too weirded out by this whole thing, let me just say that when you're digging through something difficult like this in the text, don't let all the interesting stuff or the crazy, bizarre stuff take away from the main point. And the main point here is this, that whatever was going on, God was not pleased. 
Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. There was sin and wickedness in this world and that sin grieved, the heart, grieved God to his heart. Look at the intensity of this. The wickedness of man was so great in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And it was like that continually. And so all of this evil and wickedness in this world, it just grieved God's heart so much that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. The depths of God's grief was so great that he was sorry he even created humans. Have you ever given somebody advice when their life is just kind of spiraling out of control and you just said, listen, this is going to devastate you. This is going to devastate other people around you. I can see where this is headed. And they don't listen. And things continue to, to spiral and continue to spiral. And you just grieve in your heart. And it's especially heartbreaking uh, when, it's, when it's your own kid. It's heartbreaking and devastating. And this is what God is going through. He's looking and every decision that is made by his children is wicked and evil continually. And so he's sorry that he even made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, for those of you who grew up in the church, I want you to think back to how you were taught this as a little kid. Uh, those of you my age and older, remember the flannel graphs? You know, you can pretty much date people by flannel graphs. Everyone else, Google it. Because you have Google, we had flannel. I mean, completely different communication mediums. But think back to how this was taught to you as a little kid. This is how I remember it. Noah was a good and righteous man in a wicked world. Therefore, God saved Noah and his family. How many of us remember the story that way? Yeah, quite a few of us, don't we? And let's look at and, and see if that is what it says. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, favor is this word for grace. In fact, this is the first time this word grace appears by name in Scripture. It's been there. We just haven't, haven't seen the name, uh, the name yet. Uh, so this is God giving grace. And the word for grace, the word for favor, means to bend. It means that someone who is in a higher position bends to someone in a lower position. A dad to a son. A master to a servant. A God to human bends down. Now, why would God bend down in this situation to Noah? Well, roll back the tape. In the Garden of Eden, he promised that one day a Savior would come. And if there was nothing but wickedness in the land, which is what it says, and God wiped out everything and everyone off the face of the planet and didn't save it, then that would make God out to be a liar and to be unrighteous. But he's faithful. He's true. He's righteous. And so what does he do? He bends down. 
He offers favor and grace to a, a normal guy, Noah. Just a normal guy like everyone else in the world at that time. But something happens when grace comes into your life, when God pours his favor on you. Because of this grace, Noah becomes, then, as we read, a righteous man. Noah becomes blameless in his generation. It doesn't mean he was sinless. It just means that he was above reproach. It means that in his generation, when you looked at this guy, he stood out and there was no glaring weakness with him. He walked with God. You see, for those of us who are Christians who've grown up in the church, we think of grace often as a thing that saves us. Yes, it's the thing that saves us, but it's also the thing that enables us to live a righteous life. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. And so Noah is able now to live a life that is different than the rest of the people around him. I mean, just look at how the rest of the world was. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All of it. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. And so Noah is told to build an ark. You know, that's a strange word. Uh, we might have said boat or ship. No, an ark. And the only other place outside of this story in the whole Bible where that word is used is in Exodus chapter 2 when it describes the basket that baby Moses went into the bull, the bull rushes in. That's the only other place this word is used in the whole of the Bible outside of Genesis 6 to 9. So the word ark means the sort of vessel that Noah and his family go in to be, to be safe from the water. And it means this vessel that Moses, the one who will bring, uh, be bringing the Exodus, goes in to be, to be saved from drowning. Not only that, but the ark is then described as being covered in pits. Verse 14, make yourself an ark and cover it with pits. The only other place in Scripture where anything is, is covered in pits is Exodus chapter 2 of the basket that baby Moses went into. She, so she took a basket, that is his mother, she took a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch and put the child in it. You see, we've got these two vessels which are identified as arks that are wrapped in pitch. And that's because the Scripture is trying to highlight these two stories are connected. There is a moment here where the chosen people of God are going to be going down into the water and be rescued from drowning through the providence of God who will bring them out the other side. And in the, in the same way, Israel is one day going to go down, is going to go be drawn into the waters, and her enemies are going to be drowned behind her. And that's what the Exodus story is all about. The nation of Israel going through the waters and coming out in hope and freedom and rest, and behind them, their enemies being, are drowned. And so Noah and his family, if you read the rest of the Bible, you, you think this story is telling me that there is an exodus happening here. There is a way out. That's what the word exodus means. It's not just that the world is going to be flooded. It is that there is going to be a way out through the waters for those who are righteous. That God will preserve his people in this unusual little vessel, uh, ark vessel covered in pitch. 
And in doing that, he bears witness to his rescue of God's people in the future. Noah and his family have been given a way out of judgment, and so have we. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Now, you know, this, this, this is so beautiful to me because it's a picture that God doesn't just want to renew humanity. He wants to renew creation. He wants to renew the whole world, not just people. You see, the, the ancient Hebrews believed in like a, a three-story universe, if you like. And we often see it in the Bible. They would talk about the, the earth and the waters below and the heavens above. Those are the, the, the sort of three layers, like a three-story um, house. And the ark has three tiers like that, right? There is this lower and a second and a third deck. And it's like a little mini universe. And into this mini universe, Noah is then told, verse 19, out of, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. God is like, it's like if he creates a sort of mini cosmos and then brings in all of the created things that he's made and puts them all inside and then preserves it and saves it. In other words, God wants the whole of creation to be preserved and not just human beings. And often we think about God's rescue plan is, uh, as being for me or for us, even as people. And the Bible is clear. God wants to renew and rescue everything, the whole cosmos, from the effects of sin and death. G.K. Chesterton, in his uh, classic book called Orthodoxy, he makes this remarkable comment. He says that nature is not our mother. Nature is our sister. Nature is not our mother. Nature is our sister. And that's such a profound way of describing my relationship to the world. Actually, I don't want to venerate the world as if it's my mother. It's not. God is my father. God is my creator. I get my life from him and not from some vague nature. But nature is my sister. She and I have the same father, and actually I have a responsibility to cherish her and protect her and prize her like God does because she comes from the same creator as I do. And that attitude, nature is, is not our mother, uh, she's our sister, is actually straight out of Genesis 6. God wanted to renew the world, and so he put an ark with three stories representing heaven and earth and the waters, and then he put every single kind of animal into it so that he could, he could communicate, among other things, hey, I want, I want to save everything, not just people. And in this sense, we see this story not just, we see not just the rescue of people, but the origin of new creation. That when all is said and done and the waters have subsided, a new creation is birthed out of the middle of the old one, and everything is renewed and repopulated and refilled. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. 
It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That is the most remarkable statement to me. God's like, I want you to build this massive boat thing. And I want you to find all, the, all these animals and all this food. And it doesn't say Noah quibbled with him. Noah didn't argue with him. Noah didn't have a big debate. Noah just did it. And then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. By the way, why is this a children's story? I mean, why do we paint Noah's arks in nurseries? This is a terrible kid's story. This is a story of wickedness and evil and God's response of wiping every living thing off the face of this earth. Oh, but there's animals, and kids love animals. Crying out loud, it's not a kid's story. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. He did it. Now I want you to notice the order of events here. God saw wickedness in the world. He gave grace to Noah. And then as a response to that grace, he empowered Noah to live a righteous life. And then as a righteous man following after God, who sees what God has done in his life, God asks him to do something crazy. And he says, okay. That's the story of Noah. Verse 17 the flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed and increased greatly uh, on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered, and the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, 18 inches uh, is a cubit, someone someone who can do math can figure it out, but all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock and beasts and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. You know, sometimes you will hear people, uh, the people will hear this story, they read this story, and they point their finger at God and say, you are an evil, wicked God, wiping out all of these people and all of these animals um, off the planet. How dare you do this, God? But remember what Genesis 6, 5 said, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Imagine the most evil person that you can imagine who thinks only evil, whose every decision is evil, and, and they think it, of it continually. Now fill the world with them. You see, what we see in this story is the same thing we've seen... From the beginning of the Bible, 
we see justice and mercy, grace and consequences. Listen to how Jesus' friend Peter describes this whole thing in 2 Peter 2. He says, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald or preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So we get this image that he was a herald of righteousness. And, and not, not only that this guy was an ark builder, but he was preaching to people to repent. He said he had seen what the grace of God had done in his life, and now he wanted everyone else to hear it. And so he's building, and he's preaching, and he's building, and he's preaching, and he has zero converts for at least 75 years as far as I can do the math. No converts. And so Noah, as he, as he built this ark, at, at the least people mocked him. Probably they just ignored him as he and his sons hammered away. He preached righteousness and got zero converts. And I've got to imagine he, he was tempted to give up. That he was tempted with discouragement. He was tempted with all sorts of things. Not believing God. Not a drop of rain fell. The temptation to not believe God. And yet he made it through. Not by his power, but by the power of God. And listen to how Jesus describes Noah's age in Matthew. Matthew 24 and verse 37 it says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were living a normal life. They were eating and drinking and getting married all the way up until the day that the flood began. And for them, they were just living their normal lives. And yet Noah was preaching a message of repentance to them. And no one listened. And so it is today. I mean, you may look at these chapters in Genesis and go, these are crazy. There are, there are people living like 900 years. You've got a guy who doesn't die. You've got these strange Nephilim and, and this boat and this flood. I mean, are you crazy? You want to know what's crazier? A God who created this world steps down into creation and becomes a human. So that Jesus is called not just the Son of God, but he's called the Son of Man. He's 100% God, 100% man. And this Jesus was fully born, or was fully human, so that he could live a sinless life, the life that, that, that we could never live, and die on the cross for our sins, that he would, could die the death that we deserve to die, to be buried, to be raised again, to save us like he saved Noah. And in our world, people are... Just living a normal life. They're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And just like in Noah's day, there will come a moment when it's too late. And so here's my challenge to some of you today. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, just like Noah to his generation, I'm imploring you, I'm pleading with you to repent 
to turn from your sins, to turn from your wickedness, turn from every selfish, self-centered thing you do in your life that makes it all about you, and turn to Jesus, placing your faith in him and him alone to save you because there will come a day when it's too late. Make no mistake, judgment day is coming. It's very easy to assume that there will always be tomorrow, that, the, that the, the creator God of Genesis will never bring the sinful human race to an end. But the message of Genesis 6 and 7 is that he will. You know, the other, the other ancient literature looks back at the great flood as a, a, as a traumatic disaster which happened in the past. The New Testament does that but it also treats it as a warning that a similar day is coming in the future. So, so, so don't be lulled into a false sense of, of security simply because God is, is patient and has, has postponed the final judgment for the sake of those who are yet to be saved. Now, the New Testament uses the events of Noah to remind us that the, that, that the last day of judgment is just around the corner. And so that's my challenge to some of you. But let me also close with this. You know, my favorite line in this whole story comes in in chapter 7 and verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. I just love that. And the Lord shut him in. This is, as far as I can tell, the first time that God saves somebody, rescues somebody in the Bible. I mean, he's promised to save, of course. We saw that way back in Genesis chapter 3, and we know that he will save, but this is the first time we see it actually happen when, where there's this great danger surrounding and harassing a person, and God physically rescues them from peril and brings them to safety. A family is rescued from danger by the grace and favor of God. You see, these two chapters are not primarily about the nameless multitude who perished in the flood but about a family who were saved through the ark. And the writer makes it abundantly clear that this is an act of divine grace. God told Noah about the flood. He told them to build the ark. He told them how to do it. And then just as the waters begin to rise, we read, and the Lord shut him in. In other words, he is the rescuer. He's the one that puts his hand around him, closes it around him, and saves him from the storms outside as an act of pure grace. And that's not just what he did for Noah. That's something he does for you and me as well. The the work of rescue is accomplished by God and God alone as he comes to persons in peril and says, I'm going to cover you and shut you in and keep you safe. And I will put my mark, a seal on you that prevents you from being harmed. And I will give you my spirit and I will ensure by grace alone that you are kept safe from the storms and disasters around you. And I will guarantee your safety that, that you will come out the other side of the waters. And, you know, I don't know what Noah said first thing. He, he, he stepped out of the ark. I don't know what he was thinking. I could imagine him walking down the gangplank, if they had one, stepping out into the mountain and just saying, our God saves. Our God saves. There is hope in your name. Morning turns to songs of praise. Our God saves. Our God saves. And my friends, we get to join in that song because we know what it is to have been brought through trauma 
and trouble and floodwaters and destruction and judgment protected only by the hand of God who, who is gracious. And as we step into that new creation, that salvation, and living in the good of, the, of, of his sacrifice and his covenant for us, we will join with Noah and billions of others and acknowledge that God has kept us safe through the storm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for...